Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Hey, it's me, a cranky Kong bruiser, and I'm here to say, you're an idiot, you're never going to do anything good in your life, Donkey Kong. Oh, I was going to do an offensive Jamaican accent for Funky Kong, and I lost the courage, Holden. I lost <laughs> the courage. I'm so happy you lost courage. I'm so happy you're a coward in that way, Jake. I really, Thank like, I was so going to commit to the banana slamma, brother, and I just <laughs> was like, what, who am I, Adrian Brody? Am I just an Adrian Brody over here? Nobody wants to Do the to lines that. in a non-Jamaican make an accent and it'll be actually funnier hey mon it is me your funky kong bruiser jake young <laughs> i, was the I will put you in my banana plane and we will get into the mile high club together bra <laughs> fantastic jake way to avoid all issues coming in if you have a dm though about anything that's happened on today's episode thus far please that is jake big brother <laughs> young at uh yahoo.com so get get him on that uh yes that's right today we're doing donkey kong country i am psyched i am a dk diehard i'm a dk dickhead as the fans are called i love donkey kong country like man i have so many donkey kong memories you know this is a really fun nostalgia one like kind of like the happy meal one we just did happy meal toys one like i have really loved this Mm -hmm. franchise all throughout my life like let's just start at the earliest one i remember playing donkey kong on a arcade cabinet because it was a little arcade at this terrible holiday inn we stayed at for i believe it was the odyssey of the mind competition i was a part of a weird thing where you do like a theatrical piece and also try to put weights on structures i'm blowing like five people who listen to this is mind right now they're going like i remember odyssey of the mind it was weird and uh, ours was definitely weird we dressed up like egyptians uh, ancient egyptians and um to the song walk like an egyptian we took a wooden structure made out of toothpicks and attempted to put weight on it until it collapsed to see how much weight we could put. That was a great example of Odyssey of the Mind. And while I was doing that, it was like the competition was out of out of uh, the city, so we were staying at this Holiday Inn, and the one cabinet that had f- unlimited free play on it was original Donkey Kong. 
And so just out of pure necessity, out of just the fact that I had no quarters, my mm. mom was unwilling to give me more quarters, I stood there and played Donkey Kong until I could actually beat a few of the levels. That was definitely a game as a kid where I was like, this game's impossible. Yeah. This game's ridiculous. You know, and of course it's had its resurgence with a uh, fistful of quarters and all that stuff. But, you know, that's besides the point. We're talking about Do- Donkey Kong Country up in this bitch, right? Right. Now that comes out on SNES. I'm a Sega Genesis kid. And man, what a good, first of all, I, was, I had this thought earlier. What a good Nintendo Power game. It looked so good in a oh, magazine. Oh, dear God. Hold in. Hold in. I have to. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to. I'm, Please. I'm, I'm fucking gush reversal. All right. I am kung fu <laughs> flipping. I am wow. judo. I'm taking your momentum. I am incorporating it into the, my center of mass, and I am expelling my own gush from within. Look. I, I can't deal with this. You, you learned a new jutsu yeah. since we've talked. <laughs> I'm furious with you right now, Jake. I mean, this is unbelievable. Well, my sensei died, and so I had to learn it. It was just, you know, like he taught everything he could. Uh, and now it's up to me <laughs> to protect the next generation. <laughs> I subscribe to Nintendo Power. I was a 100% died in the womb Nintendo kid, and I got one month a mysterious VHS tape <gasps> with my regular issue of Nintendo Power. And it was called Donkey Kong Exposed. <laughs> and it was this 30 minute. Or, was, sorry, it a bu- was this footage of Donkey Kong like fucking a rhinoceros? I mean, what, what are we talking about? I here? mean, no, we'll get to the expand dong meme later. But the, <laughs> it was a 17 minute promotional VHS shot like an MTV behind the scenes video with this like cool backwards hat like bro dude guy we'll also get into the donkey kong rap uh, later as well that speaks towards that a little bit dude when uh when i heard that he was one hell of a guy my entire (laughs) my my world was opened up to a new anti-authoritarian way of thinking um but you know you went behind the scenes to the nintendo treehouse you got to see all these like people whose entire lives was like playing with these supercomputers and playing video games. And the way they sold this video game, they like showed mock-ups of the cartridge and counted the memory chips on it. They showed you the wireframe renders. They showed you the server farms. They showed you all of this shit. Then I was frothing at the mouth. I Dude, was hell yeah. horny for this uh, what was going to be an apparently life-changing display of technological prowess all on my Super Nintendo. Genesis can't. Nintendo does. No. Nintendo does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I have to say I feel like I was eating my own words and those words were mom dad I think I want to say a Genesis for Christmas. I mean, I saw this footage and it looked like nothing else I had encountered in video games. I couldn't, I mean, I'd already like loved Super Mario World and, and, you know, and I had my friend, my friend Vincent uh, had a SNES. Mm -hmm. So, I definitely would go to his place. I actually have this very specific memory of doing a sleepover at his place. And that's where I got to go play like Super Mario World and any some of the SNES stuff I missed out on. He was more of a sports guy. So I remember this one fateful day. I did a spin the night at his place where we played a bunch of Donkey Kong Country. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, he kept trying to get me to go outside to play basketball with him. And I was like, <laughs> no, we're on World 5. Like, we're about to beat it. King K. Rule oh. is about to go down, bro. And you want to play some fucking dumbass basketball? 
basketball right now. We got to beat this thing. God. And I remember him just being so I was I was so annoying. Like he was so bummed out to have me there because all he, he was all he wanted to do was fucking yeah. p- shoot some hoops and all I wanted to do was take down King K Rule and play the a fucking video. Oh my god, I was that kid. I was that fucking yep. kid in so many I, sleepovers where it was like, yeah. "Hey, listen, I know you want to like engage in like lively dopamine uh life enriching competition with a fellow peer, but hear me out. What if we sat in your basement and played a video game you've already beaten a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I absolutely Oh, but hear me out. It. We'll play it two-player mode, and I'm not very good at it. So it'll be very <laughs> frustrating for you to play. I absolutely loved it. I And I did get to play the sequels. I definitely had a Game Boy, so I definitely played the, probably more of the Donkey Kong Land games almost really? than the sequels. That, but I remember my buddy Keith, later on in high school, he was the one who was like really into like Final Fantasy 3 or six, depending on your deal. Uh, he was really into kind of more intense games. He was like, dude, Donkey Kong Country 3 is like, no joke. There's all these crazy secrets. It's got such an insane overworld. Like, mm. There's so many branching paths and and there's just such an insane amount of levels and it's really hard. And so, you know, he was on the quest to like 100% that game and get everything in. And uh, uh, so I was again like, oh, interesting. Then eventually, I'm pretty sure I rented it in 64 just to play Donkey Kong 64, which came with that the expansion pack the expansion pack yes i have it in my notes but i'm not looking at them as of yet and the, you, so you have the story behind it which i is so fucking hilarious well 64 dd yeah we'll talk it we'll we'll get into all that stuff but but either way brought the n64 home played the shit out of it i definitely have thoughts about dog 64 they're definitely not unlike a lot of the criticism i read about it for this research so i'm glad that i was not you know uh uh completely off off uh, from my opinions of what the opinions that most of the people were. Um, and then, you know, it kind of went away for a really long time. And to be quite honest with you, uh, well, first of all, my first big, my first system or whatever you want to call it back into gaming, the first thing I owned since like a PlayStation 2 was in fact a Nintendo 3DS. They had a great version of that Donkey Kong Returns mm. on it. I super enjoyed playing that. But man, one of my favorite things Nintendo has put out in the past few years is actually Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. I think that game absolutely rules. It is so, it has so many beautiful, insanely intricate set pieces. Just some of the flows of those levels. It's like a, it turns into like a crazy action film at points while you're playing the game. It just is really breathtaking the amount of craftsmanship that went into that game. And it's challenging, but but um, less punishing, I'd say, than you know maybe pre- those original titles. And just, I love it. I just think it's a great game. It's a great game to watch speedrun. It's a great game to play. And I'm always trying, because I felt, you know, I feel so bad for any game that came out on the Wii U essentially, like, because they all got overlooked because that system was just kind of like a bit of a failure. Just a so I'm just so happy it got its due on the Switch. Bit. Just a smidge. I mean, Mario Maker, but yeah, just a smidge. And uh, But I had that system, and, a l- and you know, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze was one of the few games on it that was, like, actually, you know, worth the purchase. So... Yeah, I just big love for this franchise. Um, even Donkey Kong sixty four, I definitely you know it, it is a it is a collectible nightmare. It is kind of like what what I think um, I think it's what threw people off from the three D platformer craze mm-hmm. of the time. 
but also what's great about Donkey Kong Country is to tell the story of Donkey Kong Country is also to tell the story of Rare and Nintendo's relationship with Rare. And of course, a bit of, we'll give a brief history of Donkey Kong as well. But I just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that like, you know, we don't have this really anymore. Uh, graphical upgrades are so incremental, but uh, there was a certain point in time when something like this would come out and it you've never, ever seen anything like it. It just looks like the new mm-hmm. shit it, on every level. Like, I mean, the, I cannot uh, impress upon the listener enough at, like how much of a game changer this was at a time when graphics were everything. Yes. Like nowadays, you know, the indie craze, everything, it doesn't need to, to look bigger and better than everything else before it to be the hot new shit. But this was a time when like it absolutely did. And Donkey Kong absolute country absolutely was. We've talked about this a couple of times, I think in our final fantasy episode, like there was a lot of studios all kind of rushing into this Silicon graphics hardware uh, revolution. And it really, I, I, you know, it, it feels like an incredibly, specific time and place gift yeah. that we were alive and children when humanity literally developed a new way of rendering of like capturing reality. We yeah. literally invented a new art form. I say we, I mean, you know, a bunch of Gen Xers in Britain were doing this <laughs> or, and in Japan and in uh, over at Pixar, but like to go from, uh, you know, 2D draw drawings to painting to pixel art. And then all of a sudden, like these volumetric, uncanny shapes and colors, all kind of just being parallel explored all at the same time was exhilarating. Yeah. And, and, also, really good s- score. Oh God! Done by David Wise. This like bizarrely haunting score, I, especially in the underwater levels, um, mixed with this kind of uh, fun, kind of jazz age kind of thing as well. You know, it just had this vibe to it that was wholly unique, and it was a really fun, challenging platformer. You know, it was it was a one uh, in a, and we hadn't had one in a minute. You know, Super Mario World really like blew the doors open on that and was incredible. You know, Sonic was kind of always, always in the mix trying to, trying to uh, change the game, but Donkey Kong country really came in. And I think some people would say it's a bit muddy. It's a bit sticky. It's not as strong as maybe like the Mario games, um, and, and that, that lineage, but, uh, you know, a Donkey Kong, was heavier and 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 it fit the the yeah. character for sure. No, the physicality, the 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 even though it, it it felt different than Mario, it felt different from Sonic. But the levels were designed so brilliantly. Yeah, that there too. Was yeah, the mechanics like the barrels, the tagging system, where in the fir- where each uh, each Kong has a different like kind of physicality and ability set. Um, and the fucking barrels, man, those, those blast barrels created this whole new kind of like timing based, highly kinetic form of platforming. It all worked and was all unique. It was the exact kind of thing that the genre needed at the time. Yeah. And the Donkey Kong style of platformer still carries over with the, uh, with Donkey Kong Country Returns, Tropical Freeze 
and uh, the ukulele side game whose name I forgot. But, you know, it's now its own thing. It's now its own kind mm-hmm. of vibe in a platformer. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, too, that even though they're not revolutionizing, you know, the way we render graphics and things uh, in a game like Tropical Freeze, they've still kept the pedigree of, like, we're really going to blow visually your mind. Like we're going to kind of blow, blow shit out of the water in terms of how a platformer can, can look and feel. And I'm glad you brought up the game flow thing because they definitely designed that game in a, in a way that one would almost design a game to be speed run before speed running was a thing. Mm-hmm. My, and that was real, a really another cool thing I never thought about with the game where like, Oh, actually, if you just don't stop moving forward and don't hesitate, the the vine will always be there for you. the The barrel will always be exactly where it needs to be for you to con- constantly be moving forward. And um, that is really, really smart stuff. Well, are you ready to get into it? Uh, let's go. Donkey Kong Country, a series of video games based on the popular game character created by Shigeru uh, Miyamoto and reimagined by developer Rare as a side-scrolling platformer first released on the Super Nintendo in 1994. The game follows Donkey Kong and his nephew Diddy Kong as they attempt to recover their stolen banana hoard from the villainous crocodile King K. Rule. Since the first game, there have been several releases in the franchise, including two more on the SNES, three on the Game Boy, and N64 3D platformer and the most recent Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze released on the Nintendo Switch in 2018. So let's start with a brief history of Donkey Kong. In 1977, a young Shigeru Miyamoto uh, joined Nintendo after he escaped a gorilla in the caves behind his house. Um, Very few people talk about how often Shigeru Miyamoto was attacked uh, as a child by his future inspirations for video games. Chain Chomp, yeah, obviously. One would, one would ask, why would he go into the cave if a murderous gorilla was in there? At one point, he was trapped by the gorilla for several days and several nights. Some speculate they had some kind of a romance, which is interesting. I don't know. That's a speculation, of course, allegedly. But uh, he did have giant gorilla-sized uh, lipstick marks <laughs> on his face and a couple of pictures I dug up from his early childhood. But just out of college, He joins Nintendo as an artist and engineer, and he was immediately tasked with creating cabinet and promotional art for two arcade video games, Sheriff... Uh, Space Firebird and Radar Scope. Uh, And Nintendo had high hopes for these as their breakout successes in this new market as they saw great success from other companies at the time, such as Taito with Space Invaders. They wanted their Space Invaders at the time. Uh, And they didn't just want to be a hit in Japan. They wanted to be a hit in the American market as well. And uh, both of those arcade games failed to make a splash. Uh, However, uh, so Miyamoto stepped in to lead the design effort on their next arcade cabinet. Miyamoto's approach to this next game proved to be unique because at the time, a lot of stuff out there was like based on action movies, maybe sports, something like Space that. Space Invaders really, Star Wars. Everything was Star Wars or a war movie. Yeah, sci-fi, adventures, war films, explosions, car chases. These were kind of the the the, the bedrock of a lot of uh, video games uh, inspiration. And Miyamoto wanted his game to feel like a comic strip 
come to life, which was unique at the time. Uh, one with characters that showed some personality as opposed to just some car that's driving around shooting people or a spaceship that has no name or anything like that. Um, and uh, initially, this new game was to be based on comic character Popeye and his need to save damsel in distress olive oil from his nemesis Bluto in that comic book strip. And uh, unfortunately, but well, maybe fortunately at the end of the day, they were unable to secure the license. I'm the guy that like forever mourns for the Popeye game that could have been. <laughs> I mean, like all this <laughs> Nintendo was bullshit. I just wanted to play as Popeye. They did end up making a Popeye game for it's Nintendo. It's kind of crazy at- in hindsight. Like some of those characters have like survived. Popeye definitely has just gone away to the wayside, but that strip was the basis of so many things Popeye that we've talked about on this show. Popeye and, and big in Japan. Yeah, yeah. It was big and huge in America too. It's kind of amazing how hugely influential and how massively popular that comic strip is. Um, maybe if that Robin Williams movie had been a, a bit more of a hit, mm. uh, it, it would have survived to this day. But yeah, no one's trying to revamp and reboot Popeye, at least to my knowledge. Regardless, uh, this is what them not getting the Popeye license is what led Miyamoto to replace the characters with a King Kong theme. The titular character came about when Miyamoto was asked to give the game an American name in order to try and break into that market. So it's kind of a funny, like, lost in translation thing. He looked up a word, an American word, that would convey the stubbornness of an ape and put it next to the word associated with the American monster he was inspired by, King Kong. And that's how we get... Donkey Kong. It's a stubborn King Kong. It's a stubborn monkey. He's over and over again. He's always stealing your girl, and you have to climb up to the top of the construction site. And who would work on a construction site? Oh, a carpenter would work on a construction site. So this kind of um, less defined just carpenter character is uh, always going after this princess getting stolen by uh, this King Kong knockoff, Donkey Kong. Uh, Of course, Donkey Kong becomes this massive hit in the States and a classic in video game history, leading to two more sequels of its kind, Donkey Kong Jr. and Donkey Kong 3 before the death of the arcade era in the 80s and the resurgence of the home console market in the mid to late 80s that brought us the NES and stuff like Super Mario Bros, Mm -hmm. Legend of Zelda, things that seem to move on, at least for the time being. At a certain point, uh, the Donkey Kong games, especially the sequels uh, on the original NES, just didn't move the needle, especially because for American audiences, like uh, Mario Brothers was pretty much Super Mario Brothers let me just say that uh, was already like on the table and it had, you know, these levels and progression and like a linear story. And it just had so much more to offer than these arcade ports that just kind of repeated the same couple of screens over and over again. Um, so it just makes sense that Donkey Kong fell by the wayside. Uh, you know, you had stuff like um, Donkey Kong Jr. showing up in Mario Kart, but sure. up a, Basically, up until the 90s, the character was pretty much just forgotten. It was just. Yeah. A, we just sent to the island of misfit IP. Yeah, in the season, the stable technically, but not even being used that much in like the you know sports games and stuff. So, uh, and that is until Rare steps in and reinvents the whole character. But before that, let's get into the history of Rare. Uh, also, in the early eighties, nineteen eighty-two to be exact, two brothers, Tim and Chris Stamper, founded Ashby Computers and Graphics Limited in order to make video games on an eight-bit PC called the Sin. Clear ZX Spectrum. Uh, before this, they had been working steadily programming arcade games for other folks and felt they could try their hand.
hand at it themselves. The first game was designed by Chris and programmed by Tim, and it was called Jetpack, which was a platformer in which one shot aliens while collecting parts for a rocket ship. Uh, I just It just needs to be said, uh, a lot of times with these European devs, um, what really set them apart is these... Uh, the the console, gen- uh, especially in England, the console revolution didn't really hit England that hard. Uh, it was these microcomputers, the stuff like the Commodore 64, the ZX Spectrum, the Acorn, the BBC Micro, all these like weird little 8-bit bippity-boop things that these uh, kids basically spent their entire childhoods fiddling with and trying to, even though they weren't built for games, to get the most high-level gameplay and graphics out of every just millibyte, that's not a term, millibyte of uh, memory and processing power they could from these machines. And Jetpack was one of the first games for the Spectrum, which if you've ever seen old Spectrum footage, it looks like fucking Kid Picks barfed on a fucking Game Boy. It is so crude. But Jetpack played like and felt like an actual console game. It felt like a real arcade game and it kind of set up uh, Rare or at the time, I believe they were called Ultimate Play the Game. Yeah, uh, yeah. They didn't the release it dogs. as Ashby. Uh, yeah, they didn't release it under Ashby Computers. They released it under the under the dev name Ultimate Play the Game, uh, which was uh, Jetpack was the first in a string of hits for the brothers, which led them to become the top game developer in the UK because they just they had a look like you said it was uh, maybe ridiculous, you know crude in hindsight, but it, it was much nicer and cleaner than most other uh, games coming out at the time, especially in the UK. And it had a feel that was just, there was a higher level of quality, which I feel like Rare has kept uh, as for the reputation for years and years to come mm-hmm. after, right? It just, it looks great. It feels great. It just feels like it's on, an, on another level than most of the things out at the time. They were known for two things during this time. A ridiculous work ethic and media shyness as they were too busy making games as opposed to taking interviews or going to conferences. In fact, they were... They they were like the the worst like offenders of crunch. In their first three years, apparently, they only took two days off, and both of those days were on Christmas. Uh, then they discovered an amazing system released out of Japan called the Nintendo Famicom, which they quickly reverse engineered and picked apart any Nintendo game they could get their hands on for the console, and figured out how to develop for the system long before they were given the opportunity to do so. And this uh, was a subdivision. The subdivision working on these. NES games, they codenamed it Rare. They took some of the stuff they'd been working on directly to Nintendo. The company and the company was so impressed that they gave them an unlimited budget to make as many games a year as they wanted, which solidified an exclusive partnership with Nintendo. As Rare, they started putting out licensed games for the NES, such as Nightmare on Elm Street and Hollywood Squares and ports of other popular titles like Marble Madness and Sid Meier's Pirates, as well as some original IPs such as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles knockoff, Battletoads uh, during that time. And they also put out stuff on the Game Boy as well, learning how to develop for that uh, as well, hardware as well, which will come into play later. They were now much less focused on innovation, on making name for them their quality as much as they were on pumping out at least one, usually more than one functioning commercial game a month Jesus. for a few years. If you look at the list during those NES years, it is 
absurd. It is so many games. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the way they were they were pu- pushing things out for quite some time until they finally settled down when the SNES was coming out. Uh, that's when the company shifted gears again into innovation by scaling back on output and purchasing a bunch of uh, Silicon Graphics workstations, making them the most technologically advanced developer in the UK. BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Now, you have to understand, these workstations were uh, insanely expensive. Uh, David Wise, uh, the composer for the Donkey Kong Country series, uh, in an interview said that the machines cost 80,000 British sterling pounds each. Uh, so it was incredibly expensive. And just the whatever foresight the Stamper brothers had to just like be like, we want to be, we want to have our heads wrapped around this technology before it's even technically feasible, turns out to be one of the best decisions they've ever made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this weird need to be ahead of the cusp. It was like crazy. It was like they were like just pumping out shovelware, essentially. And they were like, all right, fuck that. We're going to do the absolute opposite. We're just going to invest full on in being like the most quality shit we could possibly be. And these machines were a nightmare. They had to have all of their air conditioning units focused on the machines. Mm-hmm. They were working on Donkey Kong Country in like the middle of the summer in the heat with no AC because it all had to go to the machines. The the uh, at this point, Rare was based out of like a farmhouse outside yeah, of a small in a farmhouse. village. Uh, the Donkey Kong Country team was literally in a barn. David Wise was composing music in a refurbished chicken coop. Like mm-hmm. just insane yeah. circumstance, completely insane. Power would go out all the time. They, you know, they just they had they they had to like really deal with a lot of resource management. Like in order to render certain things, they had to make sure like other people's workstations were completely turned off to focus all the power. I mean, it was like this insane operation, and they were all sharing one user manual for these machines. And apparently, this user manual was like incredibly obtuse. It was at least by one uh, person's. Uh, um, description. It was just not made with an artist in mind. Mm-hmm. It was like completely over the top technicality just stuff. Imagining a world where like you're you're trying to do something in Photoshop and you don't quite know how to get the effect you're looking for, and there is no YouTube, there is no Google, there is no way to just find the thing you're looking for and just like learn how to do it. You have to open up an actual book and start reading it and hope yeah. that the technique you need is covered in it. Like, insane. <laughs> um, according to legend, uh, it was around 1993 when uh, a executive for Nintendo named Tony Harmon caught sight of the Aladdin 
video game adaptation for the Sega Genesis made by Virgin Interactive. Mm -hmm. This is not the one made by Capcom, and this is the one famously that had hand-drawn animation by original Disney animators to create the sprite work. And it was so above and beyond good-looking that uh, Harmon saw uh, the fear of God. Yeah. He realized that, like, Nintendo was lagging on the graphical front, and if your game doesn't look as good, it won't look as good in magazines, and little Billy Jim Jim won't ask for your console or your games for Christmas. And so he started this insane drive to find just the the most extravagant demo, just who is out there making something that will make their game stand apart. And it was uh, it was him that apparently connected Rare with Nintendo. And there was a famous meeting with uh, Genyo Takeda and Shigeru Miyamoto where they had to showcase kind of the things that they were working on with these Silicon Graphics workstations that uh, could maybe compete with a lab. Yeah, uh, Chris, Tim, and the team all this time had been learning how to no longer rely on bitmapping for their games, instead creating a game using a full CGI render. They initially did this with a very basic boxing game to learn the ropes, and uh, when they got uh, connected with Nintendo, it was like this perfect kismet. Lead designer Greg Mails said, at the time, software houses outside Japan were producing graphics that were considered superior to those produced inside Japan. Nintendo visited us and we demonstrated a proprietary graphics system that we were toying with, which became ACM, which stands for Advanced Computer Modeling. As a result, they asked us to do a game using the Donkey Kong character. Males also spoke about the utility of the 3D animation. He said, the use of 3D modeling was an alien concept to us and the industry at the time. Once the character was modeled in 3D, we could view it at any angle and render out the frames of 3D animation that uh, were then converted to 2D images. Previously, animation was extremely extremely labor-intensive and required great artistic skill to get the angles and lighting correct. This new computer-assisted method enabled us to produce animation quicker to a higher standard and with a previously unseen realistic look. Uh, So that is this is the point where they change their name to Rareware and get to work. Uh, After seeing this demo, which I heard boxing game, I also... uh Watched another interview where a former Rare employee said it was actually an early prototype of uh, Killer Instinct called Brute Force. Cool. Uh, But either way, Nintendo immediately buys a 49% stake in Rare, making them an official second party developer. They just locked that shit down. And uh, they, I think it was Miyamoto that suggested Donkey Kong would be a good character choice for the game. Um, it was actually uh, Greg Bales, who, oh, sorry, Greg Males, Greg Males, sorry, uh, who uh, redesigned Donkey Kong initially, and uh, he de- he revealed something that I find so upsetting. Uh, when you look at the new Donkey Kong's like uh, uh, eyebrow ridge, it's literally the same shape and form factor as the Battle Toads. Like to this day, Donkey Kong still has a genetic uh, link to Battle Toads. <laughs> <laughs> which was another game he had helped design, which I find very hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so a team of 12 people are assigned to the game, which was more than Rare had ever assembled for a single game before. This is back when teams were much smaller than they are now, of course. Then they did what most game designers do and went to the zoo. According to Greg Males, yes, we did go to the zoo and observe the gorillas, but found out when they did move, it was completely unsuitable for a fast-paced video game. So all of the animation had to be done by hand. We went through about 15 different 
versions of how DK could move. DK's movement in the final game is based loosely on how a horse moves, but I recall laughing at some of the other animal-themed attempts, including a rabbit and a frog. So this this character can't get away from donkeys, horses, uh, or the like. It's, it's very bizarre how we keep connecting the monkey to the horse. It was a very iterative process. Uh, I believe uh, they were trying to figure out what the core action for the game would be. What would be Donkey Kong's signature attack? And uh, they were like, maybe he spins around like a tornado. Maybe he does like a little leapfrog move. And they couldn't quite figure out uh, what to incorporate because what they really wanted was a sense of forward momentum. They really wanted that perfect flow state where if you're like in tune with the game, even though they're throwing all these obstacles at you, you can just like propel yourself forward. And, you know, speed running wasn't a thing yet, but they had clearly gotten that speed run perfect timing vibe uh, in their hearts when they started. Well, definitely that would have to be be, uh, largely because of certain levels they played in Super Mario Bros. 3. That was one of their Mm. biggest influences in terms of game flow. And not every level is like that. But in Super Mario Bros. 3, like there are certain levels where if you actually just do not hesitate and just constantly are moving forward, you have a way easier time with the level than if you're like, oh, I'm going to wait for this thing. You know, a good example is those sun levels, Mm. right? Like the more just constantly you're in motion, the the, be- the better you can get through it. There's so many of those experience. Another interesting thing I just thought about was also Donkey, uh, I'm sorry, Super Mario had those water levels as well. Mm. I mean, of course, there were water, le- were there water levels before that? Actually, I'm trying to remember. There was in, water in- levels in Super Mario 1. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. But it had, it, it had um, I think, probably an influence on them as well, those water levels in uh, Super Mario Bros. 3. Um, but yeah, they, they, in order to get this done, they had to do very specific th- things like placing the swinging ropes in a way that would always be coming towards the player when they first encountered it so that they could grab onto it immediately, giving them the option to constantly be moving forward. I think you experience this a lot more obviously in the what you mentioned before, the canon sequences. Mm-hmm. Like if you hesitate, you kind of have to wait for another cycle. But a lot of those sequences, you just if you just keep uh, you know blasting away at the canon, you're kind of... You're just kind of constantly in motion. The level design was actually done with a fairly innovative process where uh, they decided to build each level around a core theme or mechanic and then built them using a series of post-it notes to kind of create a uh, kind of piece by piece map of the level so that individual parts could be switched out or changed without having to scrap the entire design document. Um it was there was a lot of things going on. Uh, Shigeru Miyamoto kept sending them sketches that he made of Donkey Kong. Uh, it was uh, through those that they decided, well, I guess we have to give him a necktie because that's what Miyamoto yeah, gave yeah. him, uh, which then led to fuck. How do we make a necktie in Silicon Graphics? Yeah, um, <laughs> but but he was right. That little accoutrement, like every character needs that one little accent piece to just define their character. That's a brilliant Miyamoto touch. Um, the uh, general uh, expanded cast, they didn't quite know what to do with it because, uh, you know, was Diddy Kong supposed to be Donkey Kong Jr.? Was Cranky Kong supposed to be the original Donkey Kong? Uh, at one point, Nintendo didn't want the use of Donkey Kong Jr. because they wanted a fresh start uh, for the character and actually didn't want to hearken too much to the old games, especially the Donkey Kong Jr. games. I'm I'm sure they were burned by Donkey Kong Jr. math. I think they were just traumatized (laughs) by how little people gave a shit about Donkey Kong Jr. math. 
Um, originally, Diddy was going to be called Dinky Kong, uh, but that was apparently a copyright uh, conflict with a toy car brand also called Dinky. Uh, and so they ended up with Diddy. The Kremlings, the bad guys. Oh, real quick, a little more on uh, Diddy. Greg Vale said, we had a sheet of paper that we passed around where potential names were scribbled down. Some were hilariously bad. Diet DK, DK Light, and t- Twitchy Kong. Uh, we settled on Dinky Kong, but after legal advice, decided to change it to Diddy. And again, you're about to go into King K. Rule and the Kremlings, and they wanted to go with Wario, actually, for the villain. But uh, again, they wanted an original villain instead. The original pitch doc- was a was called Donkey Kong versus Super Wario, and oh lord, I, what w- I mean, what give could it that have to been? Me. Like whatever with the Popeye thing, like that's whatever. But give me the Wario villain in the Donkey Kong. That would have been so fun. Absolutely. But instead, they go with King K. Rule and the Kremlings, which were actually pulled from an, a canceled adventure game that Rare was working on for Macintosh computers, which was titled Johnny Blastoff and the Kremling Armada. Uh, and th- this, uh, this, he was based on, you know, kind of the clumsy villain, mm-hmm. uh, the kind of the goof em, goof em up villain that's uh, kind of bad at their job. That's of that classic archetype uh, for sure. It's also uh, spawned the weird fan theory that the entire Donkey Kong Country universe is based on the banana wars uh, that America was involved with in South America, a series of coups and military conflicts because so many of the Kremlings have uh, military kind of uh, uh, garb and various tactics involved and they are fighting over bananas. I feel like it was really just because originally it was going to be Wario and Wario is really greedy and he always like steals the loot mm-hmm. of the protagonist in his games or when he's the protagonist he's like just collecting money so I think they were just that's why it was based on like stealing a treasure and what would be Donkey Kong's treasure? He's a gorilla so it would be bananas. I mean that's kind of the one to one I drew. For sure. Uh, It turned out to be the backgrounds that proved to be the most challenging as they didn't want the background to repeat as was the usual practice at the time. So they instilled a method that did involve repeating elements, but in a disguised way by cutting up elements of the single screen environment by hand and then arranging them manually. And apparently this process just took hours and hours. It was really annoying. It's um, it's kind of a very convoluted extension of the original trick from the first Super Mario Brothers, where uh, the clouds and the bushes are the same sprite just with different colors uh the super nintendo and the original nintendo use a tile based uh graphics processing system so you literally couldn't just slap a jpeg on there and call it a day you had to make sure that everything could be broken down into these little eight by eight pixel squares that could be repeated it's saved on memory it's saved on uh resources it's just how it worked you couldn't just draw a background and have it in the game as you drew it um Another limitation was the sprites uh, that the Super Nintendo used were limited to 16 colors, uh, 15 if you count the transparency color that you need it so that the sprite is actually like there on the screen without like artifacts or anything. And so they had to take these beautiful full color renders, millions of colors on these silicon graphics machines and like figure out the 15 colors that they can get the most detail out of for all of these for the enemies, for the player sprites, for everything else. Uh, So even with all this technology, like that was the magic of Donkey Kong Country. It was still a Super Nintendo game. Yeah. It was still like a older system. They just had to 
hide and just do things that you didn't think were possible with the existing hardware. Uh, another little fun side note about Donkey Kong's design. Originally, it was designed with three fingers and a thumb. Nintendo informed them that three fingers are commonly associated with Yakuza in Japan, so they added the fourth finger. <laughs> I love those little, like, just factoids that uh, that are based on, like, weird, dark shit. Uh, so, the team then goes to Kyoto to show off the game at Nintendo's headquarters. Greg Mail said, we were there to demo an early version of the game to the people that created the original character. It was the first time many of the people at Nintendo had seen the game, and our radical approach with the graphics didn't initially go down too well. Oh, I love this story. Mr. Yokoi remarked that, quote, it looked too 3D. Miyamoto was much quicker to appreciate what we uh, had done and gave his approval. Mr. Miyamoto and his staff used their unparalleled experience to give us some input on how we could smooth out a few rough edges and suggested that DK would look good with a hand slap move. We thought this would be cool, too, so even though we were only a few weeks away from the deadline, we included it. Uh, I don't know if the uh, if you're listening to this and you've heard this story at some point during an earlier stage of the internet, but there was a quote that went around internet yes. circles for a long time where Shigeru Miyamoto supposedly said that like uh, Donkey Kong Country proves that people don't care about gameplay as long as it looks good. There is no evidence that he said this, and he has uh-huh. specifically disavowed it in later interviews in the more co- recent era. Yeah, he was like, and I no- helped them yeah. make it. What the, the fuck are you talking about? people who worked Rare were like, we loved having him consult with the game. He contributed a bunch of great ideas. Yeah. Uh, so wh- I don't know if that like has burned itself into your folk memory, but there is no evidence of this. And like, I don't agree that the it plays Yeah, badly. it plays great. I don't know. It, I mean, yeah, I like, think it supposedly, I think this was just bitter, Yoshi's Island fans just mad (laughs) that Donkey Kong Country is the now... Those uh, Yoshi's Island people are worse than the prequel people. I mean, they're just (laughs) nightmarish. (laughs) Yeah, they're always wang. They're always they're always but they're a bunch of babies. They're always screaming, hanging out in their basement, touching in a bubble, getting dizzy. (laughs) The music we already mentioned was composed by David Wise, who had been the sole composer for Rare since 1985. Do you you know how they found him? Yeah, there's the story. I was working in a music shop demonstrating a Yamaha CX-5 music computer to a couple of people, Tim and Chris Stamper. I'd written and programmed the music for the demonstration material. They offered me a job. Literally, that's like, it, right? Demo guy, demo scene guy, rep- like respecting yeah. demo scene guy. Totally. Um, David Wise, his soundtrack, uh, along with, uh, I believe it's Evelyn uh, Fisher, mm-hmm. uh, were essential for this game. Like, it really uh, kind of, what it did was it took. What we were seeing on <laughs> what screen. It did was it, what it did was it put me in a weird mood when I got to those underwater levels is what it did. <laughs> right, well, I just remember so many like Sunday afternoons being like, why do I feel sort of depressed, but but also just like in love with this, <laughs> like enamored with this game? So uh, what it did is because Weiss was a demo scene guy, he understood that to get the hardware running for... Uh, in a efficient manner that it didn't slow down the game and still kind of uh, enhanced the kind of mind blowing visuals. He had to do things with the Nintendo sound chip that other companies just weren't doing. He had to just extract every little uh, sound gimmick and technique out of that hardware that uh, players who had played a bunch of Nintendo games at this point, it was a very mature system at this point uh, just truly had to stop in their tracks 
and the visuals, the songs all like bouncing off each other. What you're talking about is aquatic um, ambience, uh, which yes. April which is probably Leo, the most like. Yeah, memorable, impressive. Uh, you can even just tell, even as a kid, you could tell it was just like, there's something, this is on another level than like anything I've heard on a Super Nintendo before. Yeah, April, play us some aquatic ambience. For that, David Wise wanted this kind of haunting, kind of uh, crossfadey waveform sound. I'm not an audio engineer. Please don't talk to me about sawtooths or square waves or attacks. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, this was a very specific audio uh, uh, synthesis technique that the Super Nintendo was not built to do natively. And he went in and figured out how to do it on a machine code binary level and then figured out how to translate that into the hex code programming that uh, the Super Nintendo used. And so he managed to get this wholly original sound from your machine that you've heard a million different versions of. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Super Nintendo used a lot of samples in in its audio production. So uh, you could hear various instrumentations and various uh, uh, sound cues. Uh, weirdly enough, the Funky Kong music, the ah yeah, song was actually a leftover thing from the Killer Instinct brute force demo that they, he just got <laughs> permission to use. Uh, which now that I know that makes total sense. I would just sit in my rec room, land on the Funky Kong uh, little area, and just jam the fuck out to that song. And when Jake, what do you think Funky Kong would say about that track? Uh, pass the weed, brother. Yeah, mine. <laughs> I am oh, from right. Jamaica. Actually, I'm getting offended. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, the soundtrack's incredible, absolutely wonderful, and uh, really just completes the game in terms of like him pushing the the compositions to as far as he could in, in the hardware of the SNES. I mean, it just just made the whole package feel like it was on an absolute other level from anything else that had come out uh, up to that point on the SNES. And so Donkey Kong uh, is released in November of 1994. It ends up being a huge success, selling over 8 million copies. It remains the second best-selling SNES game of all time, just behind Super Mario World. And Vincent, I'm sorry, but I had to fucking see the credits on that game, bro. It was like amazing. Uh, what do you want from me? The game cost an unprecedented million dollars to make when all was said and done between the hardware costs, the labor costs, and everything else, and had a insane $16 million marketing budget behind it. Nintendo knew that they were falling yeah, behind it was on, on everything. Project on Ultra 64. They knew that the PlayStation was out. Like everything was working against them, and they needed to keep the Super Nintendo as a relevant platform, and they threw everything behind this because they knew. The nation's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds would get their beans exploded as soon as they caught. Good Lord. What? <laughs> it's it's like their even... pituitary gland. It just starts squirting all over once you see the good all monkey right, graphics. Jake. They're children, please. I uh, 
<laughs> and they really this. I feel like this franchise did keep the Nintendo afloat until Mario sixty four essentially in the in the release of the N sixty four. I mean, it really it was the connector between the SNES and and they're so good at that as a company. They're so good at giving their console like a second or third life with just like pushing that shit as hard as far as they can like the nes they did the same shit they they kept it alive way longer than anyone thought they they possibly would uh so of course this leads to many sequels the game is such a hit that nintendo decided uh not only to green light sequels in the snes but also produce a line of game boy games as well just kind of like they did with mario Mm -hmm. they had mario world for the snes but they had mario land for uh the game boy they have donkey kong land as the first game boy game comes out in mid 1995 and used the same computer modeling process as they did for the main series. And the plot is kind of hilariously meta. I never caught this. I, I played this game a million times, but uh, this was in the description for the game. Uh, I think it was maybe in the booklet is where you could have read this. Cranky Kong apparently scolds Donkey and Diddy Kong about the success of the first game, claiming it had nothing to do with fun gameplay and was only a hit because of graphics and sound, which uh, the Donkey, Donkey and Diddy, they refute this. So we challenge challenges them to replicate their success on a monochrome handheld device, which they accept. So Cranky calls up King K. Rool, asks them to again steal their banana hoard, thus prompting them to have to play, to, to, to go through the whole adventure again on the handheld to prove that Donkey Kong uh, could, could be a success without all the flashy tech on the SNES, which I think is amazing. Uh, Donkey Kong Land 2 and Donkey Kong Land 3 follow in the same tradition. They mirror their counterpart parts on the SNES with generally the same world design as the mainline games with very different level design so, throughout. Uh, for this episode, I finally picked up Donkey Kong Country 2. It's available on uh, Super Nintendo Online. Diddy's on Conquest. People can't get over the subtitle. Uh, it became such a meme because uh, you would think it would, was Diddy Kong's Quest. It was Diddy's Conquest. I get the like pun. Conquest. I'm a pun man. I get it. There you go. Uh, at least 1995. Playing it as an adult was a revelation. It is, I think, a better, more well-designed game than the original Donkey Kong Country. Every level presents a wholly unique challenge in ways that I was not prepared to just like, just, it was beautiful. Those um, fucking B levels, though, man. The B levels, uh, goddamn B levels. I mean, the spider, the whole series, the balloons. There's a lot of things, you know, uh, collecting enough Kremlin coins to get Clubba. Like, it's a lot of the stuff is, uh, you know, it, it gives it a lot of replay value because there's the secrets actually, in theory, matter more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everybody- again, making it such a good Nintendo Power game, it wasn't just because it looked good on the page. That every game was so loaded with secrets and and hidden walls and things like that that I just I, it just worked so well on a like we have to read about this to like figure everything out in this game. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. 
From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Um, I will say David uh, Wise went even harder core uh, this time around. So many of the uh, tracks in this game are even better, I think, than the first one. Uh, songs like Forest Interlude and uh, the kind of mirror to Aquatic Ambience is uh, a song called Sticker Bush Symphony, which, uh, April, I'm going to keep talking, but like play this in the background because... Uh, it is equally haunting, uses a lot of the same waveform techniques that we talked about in Aquatic Ambiance, and it is so like resonant with a generation of gamers that a tradition has actually kind of come from the woodwork on YouTube. Uh, the original video was taken down by Nintendo due to copyright, thanks Nintendo, but it continues on other postings of the song uh, where people will actually check in with each other in the comments section of Sticker Bush Symphony and talk about their entire life's like trials and tribulations, where they're standing across, uh, at this point, what, um, over a decade, uh, if we were able to keep the old comments. Uh, just from uh, the last few months on uh, one of the video postings, uh, one user says, Checkpoint, I just turned 37. I've had a pretty hard opiate heroin addiction since I was nine. I literally wasted my life away. I hear this song and I can't help but cry, thinking back to a time when things were easier. Uh, another post, last time I was here a little under a year ago, I had severe cancer problems. And even though I'm getting better, uh, the chances uh, that I have are not great. I proudly can say, though, that I am cancer-free right now as I'm posting this. Checkpoint. I lost uh, my house and my job. I had to move in with my parents from everything that I had built up. Sitting in my old room, listening to this, realizing that it's been 20 years since this song echoed through this house, and it somehow makes everything seem okay again. Like, this is a Donkey Kong Country BGM track and it evokes so much powerful emotions and like just draws out all this humanity out of the people that have had a chance to play these games like there is some there is some juice here with Donkey Kong Country and it's not just hey we made the monkeys 3D yeah, I, right. There's, it's just more special. There's, it really does feel elevated in, in terms of a game, and so much so thanks to David Wise's score uh, that he was able to uh, give to these games uh, in the original trilogy. Um, of course, you also have Donkey Kong Country Three, Dixie Kong's Double Trouble, released in 1996. Um, Dixie Kong was actually introduced in Donkey Kong Country Two because if you remember, Diddy Kong is actually the main character character of that game they're trying to save donkey kong and dixie ends up being the sidekick and she can also you know swing her ponytail around like a helicopter which allows for some really nice like floaty platforming that comes in handy um well they introduce uh dixie's baby cousin kitty kong in the third one as the main playable character and again finally just pushing the nes's hardware 
to its limits. Um, I think another thing about these games that we we haven't said yet is like just way more levels than you'd ever think mm-hmm. that there would be in a game that looks this good and sounds this good. Like it, you would think that kind of game you would be able to you'd beat it really fast and you know it was like yeah but it just looks amazing so I just beat it over and over again. No, these games took quite some time, especially this third one. Uh, the overworld is huge. The number of levels is is ridiculous. I think it's like is it like seventy or something? It's like crazy and uh, there's just a bunch of uh, secrets and hidden things and just reasons to come back to this over and over and keep playing it and keep discovering new things and uh, yeah I just think they nailed it with these three I mean all three games are great and uh, the Game Boy games too really fun in a time when most Game Boy ports of SNES titles or whatever um, were usually pretty disappointing. I will those say those games looked good and I, I, I enjoyed them. Playing those games on original Game Boy hardware with the detailed kind of um, advanced computer modeling sprite work, it got real muddy real fast on those things. I'm, right. I'm going to say it. I really wanted to like those games as a kid. And I was just like, I can barely understand what's happening on the screen. <laughs> Uh, so that's when we get to Donkey Kong 64. DK Donkey Kong. All right, fine. DK. Let's get into it. The game was also composed by Banjo Kazooie composer Grant Kirkhope. However, he did use David Wise's soundtracks as inspiration. But then there's the DK rap written by director George Andreas, director of Donkey Kong 64, and it introduces the characters and their abilities. April, hit it! <laughs> Holden, they're finally <laughs> here. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I feel like the Do- Donkey Kong Country kind of kept plat 2D platformers alive at a time when they were starting to get stale. Whereas Donkey Kong 64 kind of did the opposite. It seemed to kind of kill off the 3D platformer uh, in a lot of ways in terms of popularity because of just the sheer amount of collectibles in this game and things like that. I'm not knocking the game wholesale. Like- at the time, uh, reviewers were very positive about the game. It was uh, technically very advanced. Uh, you know, it, that kind of collect-a-thon gameplay. People were like, oh, yeah, you got a lot of things to collect. But, like, it wasn't as monotonous or just, you know, game... You know, there wasn't a, a horizon where they had worked past better ways to engage uh, players than just put a bunch of shit in the middle of the map so they can, like, walk around and know where to go and do all the things. Like, it's just... It's a, it's a holdover from its time. Uh, and, uh, also it's because of the way that the different, it's kind of a Metroidvania in a lot of ways where different characters gain different abilities. And so you have to access different parts of these worlds. Uh, it does feel a little backtracky, but at the time people were not like, well, pack it in 3d platforming's dead. Like it wasn't like that bad. I do love that the N64 expansion cart was included with the game. Uh, not because the game was so revolutionary. In theory, 
You could run the game without it, but there was some kind of game-breaking bug that they just could not squash. Yeah. And so the only way to get the game in a playable state by the Christmas holiday where they needed this release was to include an extra, I don't know how many, 64 megabytes of RAM? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, editor's note, somebody else was out there saying this was refuted or this wasn't real. Oh, and that was just wasn't a rumor, real. But I don't know. Well, who? I one person said it. Other people claim otherwise. I just want to throw that out there. It's that they were like, no, we'd are we'd always plan from the beginning to include the um, the expansion pack as a like part of the game. But so um, wait, did Miyamoto? There's also, but there was a bug. There was a bug for sure. But um, I don't know. I, that's just I'm just throwing it out there that in in digging a little deeper on that that may that may not be all the way the truth. But yes, there was definitely a bug that existed without the expansion pack, mm. but it. The expansion pack's inclusion removed the bug, and maybe they just also were like, "Fuck it," then just keep the you know keep the bug. I don't even want to deal. It with also it. had stop and swap technology, where you would yank the uh, banjo kazooie or banjo tooie cartridge out of the N sixty four and put uh, Donkey Kong sixty four in it, and that was uh, kiboshed by Nintendo because they were like. Why are you encouraging our users to break their consoles? Yeah. Uh, so also uh, uh, rare, you know, they they were also doing Banjo-Kazooie at this time, the other big 3D platformer for the N64. And they definitely pulled a lot of team their team from that game and incorporated them into the Donkey Kong 64 team. So a lot of the same DNA there with those two games. Uh, Banjo-Kazooie came out in 1998. Donkey Kong 64 came out in 1999. And uh, it actually was originally going to be a linear platformer game. This was scrapped after about 18 months, which is partly why the game took three years to make. And so they essentially had to start from scratch, replacing their pre-rendered approach with polygons using a new tool called GameGen. And uh, yeah, as I stated before, this game has an insane amount of collectibles. Apparently, Tim Stamper in- implemented uh, this intentionally to set it apart from Banjo-Kazooie. Director George Andreas said, I'd always go back to him and say, here's some, and he'd go, no, more things. Uh, Andreas apparently later stated he wished he had reined it in just a little bit. I mean, we're talking all these different like colored bananas and crystal coconuts. I just remember that being dizzying. Like there was just, it was just absurd. There was so much shit to collect. There was so many like things you'd have to go back, you know, through a whole platforming sequence to like get to a different item. It was just a lot. Um, and kind of reaching it's like full, the full weight of that in a game, um, in terms of a 3d, the 3d platformers of, of the time. And, uh, yeah, Fuck it. it should also be noted uh, during this time around the late 90s, uh, Donkey Kong Country made its way to the small screen with its very own insanely cringy animated series produced as in France and Canada using cutting edge mocap technology to animate it. And it is uh, now a giant meme factory because none of the like it's a musical I, I think it, I just really need to stress there is so much singing in this uh, in this series. Uh, characters are completely redesigned. Uh, just it's it's a fever dream of a show. Uh, but if I could just get um, a little bit of a beautiful voice, Sterling Jarvis, Canadian voice actor Sterling Jarvis, uh, singing. Uh, just maybe. Uh, how about I'm gonna be a star. From uh, <laughs> from the Donkey Kong Country song, 
uh, cartoon. Uh, I just, it has to be acknowledged. It is such a weird source of YouTube poop of nonsensical memes. It's just, it happened. It happened. There's 40 episodes of it. I tried watching one episode and I couldn't get through it. It's really <laughs> bad. I can see it now, the crowd begins to cheer My name in lights at the movie's premiere I'm gonna be a star Imaginary idol worship from afar I'm gonna be a star You're gonna know this place no matter who you are And hey, you know what? We heard it once, let's hear a little bit more one more time It's the DK rap, you can't get enough April, hit it! No! <laughs> Why would you do this to the nice people that listen? So after Donkey Kong 64, the franchise remains pretty dormant for about 10 years. Donkey well, Kong, he's in other stuff. You know what I mean? He's, he's in Smash and well, in, all this kind of by thing. By 2002, Rare actually kind of hit a cash flow issue where uh-huh. um, the production costs for the next generation of video games was really outside of their uh, current abilities. They really needed an influx of cash. All these fancy Silicon Graphics workstations that they invested in were basically useless at this point. Um, uh, even, uh, the N64 was based on Silicon graphics technology. Like the, they had built their entire workflow, their entire production line on this very specific technology that was no longer valid. And to catch up and compete with AAA developers, they were just very cash strapped. Uh, they made an offer to Nintendo. They asked them to buy them out and help them kind of continue on to make games. And Nintendo said, nah, man. Uh, DK 64 was mid bro. Perfect dark. Eh, what do you, you know, like we're not, we're not doing it. And that's when rare, uh, agreed to get bought out, uh, for a, a, I believe it was $375 million, uh, got bought out by Microsoft and created exclusives for the Xbox. Yeah. Which in our, Pinata uh, and all that good stuff. For sure. You know, if you uh, listen to our uh, Xbox Connect episode, you'll know that they uh, very quickly got sent to the uh, shovelware mines, making a lot of Connect based games in a very short amount of time. And Rare kind of, uh, you know, was struggling for a while. I think it's basically Sea of Thieves is what saved them when all was said and done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, actually. It's probably their biggest, like, comeback to, uh, for sure to date. Uh, so, yeah, Rare's out of the picture. Um, but that's when Retro takes over the uh, the uh, Retro Studios, uh, a dev group that started out as a partnership between Nintendo and industry veteran Jeff Spangenberg, who uh, founded Iguana Entertainment back in the early 90s. Uh, I remember the logo from those NBA Jam console ports back in the day. They also, he also what's the name of the horny man game that he made? Well, uh, there was well, Spangenberg got his start from the uh, famously uh illegal <laughs> horny game uh the guy game <laughs> uh and uh he also was vital in the uh, Turok series and Iguana also made that horrible just dog shit 
uh, South Park uh, first person shooter for the N64. Oh God, they made that one. Yeah. Oh fuck, man, so bad. We definitely talked about it on the South Park episode. Well, actually, I don't know if we talked about it. I was uh, I was dealing with the new board at that point. Oh yeah, but no, I, I definitely I would have screamed about it. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. Now uh, there was actually a huge upset around the time that uh, Retro was on deck to make Donkey Kong Country Returns because the studio uh, was a giant fiasco for Nintendo for the longest amount of time. Um, They were just constantly starting and stopping with all these demos. There was very little communication. Spangenberg like uh, tried to poach a lot of talent from Iguana and a lot of them didn't follow him to retro. So he was like training people. They were just not making anything to the point where Nintendo executives had to like come in, fly over and like sternly reprimand everybody on the team to actually get their shit together. And it kind of worked because uh, from that uh, kind of dark period, the Metroid Prime trilogy came out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, There was then further uh, issues when Spangenberg uh, was caught running a porn site out of Retro Studios' uh, <laughs> internet servers. They wanted the adult guy. They wanted the guy for the adult audience. I mean, what do you expect? Of course he's running porn sites. I mean, come on, people. It's a no-brainer. So Spangenberg kind of uh, left and took a lot of Retro's team with them. And so Retro was kind of caught in this, you know, rocked by scandal, missing a lot of their key talent, and on the hook from this uh, foreign conglomerate And that's when they were kind of given a last shot to kind of stay in the picture. And that last shot was to bring back the Donkey Kong Country series. And bring it back, they did. I absolutely love this first game and even more so love the follow-up. This game is also produced by Nintendo mainstay Kensuke Tanabe, who worked on Super Mario Bros. 2. And it did incorporate some elements from that game. There's a bit of pulling up of crops, let's say, Mm. from the ground, things like that. And uh, of course, we're, by the way, talking about Donkey Kong Country Returns. It's a much better mechanic than the thing where Donkey Kong had to blow on like dandelion puffs to get extra bananas. Yes, yes, uh, I do remember that as well. And they wanted to install a nostalgia for the old games while providing updated graphics and effects. It had full polygonal 3D graphics. And one of the cooler effects in the game is in certain levels where DK can jump from the foreground to the background, which was actually inspired by that fucking weird Wario Land game on the Virtual Boy. So I love that 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 came up. Um, Another thing they did, really smart move, they brought back David Wise to score this game, which was great. It was, I, I think, foolish of them to, st- uh, to to step away from him for Donkey Kong 64. And uh, yeah, uh, I think, I don't believe I played this on the Wii. I'm pretty sure I primarily played it on the Nintendo 3DS, which uh, came out with a port of the, a wonderful port of the game uh, with Donkey Kong Country Returns 3D. The game is released on both the Wii and the Wii U starting in 2010. And uh, just very solid. There's these really cool silhouette levels mm-hmm. that are absolutely beautiful. I mean, gorgeous is the word when it comes to these newer Donkey Kong games. They look amazing. They have that same, you know, classic game game feel of the original, you know, that heaviness of Donkey Kong. The challenge is there because I think the challenge needs to be put up in front and center as well, which separated Donkey Kong from uh, Country, the franchise from, let's say, like, especially the newer Mario games, mm-hmm. right? 
uh, you know, that they were just really trying to create like a family fun feel. Whereas Donkey Kong always was about challenge. And even that sequel of the original trilogy was made even harder than the first because they wanted to address uh, complaints from veter- gamer veterans who wanted a harder game. You know, they always leaned into that challenge. I think that was a part of the enjoyment of the Donkey Kong Country series is that it was a platformer with a little bit more of a bite to it. Uh, but man, really, the reason for the season, if you're going to play any Anything based off this episode. I mean, absolutely go on to uh, if you have a Switch, definitely get on those virtual consoles. The SNES, I believe, has all three of the original games, and they are f- fantastic to go back to. But man, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Fr- Freeze, the most recent in the franchise, released first on the Wii U in 2014, and thankfully also got a big Switch release in 2018, as it was definitely underappreciated on the less popular console. Well, obviously, uh, you should play the 2018 version because that one has. Funky mode. Hell yeah, that's right. <laughs> finally, they're finally here. It's funky mode. Everybody loves it. Um, you know, move over with featuring Dante from the Devil May Cry series. We got new funky mode. Throw it on any box art. It makes any box art better. Yeah, absolutely. You know what makes any episode of this podcast better is the Donkey Kong rap April. No, Hit a, a it! third time. A third time. <laughs> When she needs to be, she can go through the air and climb up tree. If you choose her, you'll not choose wrong. With a skip and a hop, she's one cool con. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gotta love it. Uh, that the, the Tropical Freeze incorporated a lot more ca- camera work from the previous game, having these dynamic swings from a side to a full-on 3D view. It looks so impressive. I just think that game should get more love. Um, there was actually recently they did a speed run of it on um, Summer Games Done Quick. Maybe go check that out on YouTube. That's That'd probably be a really fun way to watch the game if you don't want to play through it yourself. Uh, but absolutely check it out. It is really, really pretty, really fun. If you love, you know, 2D platformers like I do, uh, this is such a good addition. This would probably be on my top 10 2D platformers of all time, uh, I'd say easily. Uh, yeah, and I mean, that's pretty much all I got, Jake, except for um, I do have one more go of the Donkey Kong no, rap April. Hit Bankrupt. I, I, it took us a while. I thought we'd have hit that wall after year two, but like we made it, it was a good run. <laughs> 
I'm turning into the Joker, Jake. <laughs> Honestly, I would love it if one of us turned into the Joker of podcasting. <laughs> that would do great for our numbers. Are you kidding me? Have you seen the podcast charts? One of us has to go Joker mode. It's going to be a, a musical with Lady Gaga in it, though. I hope that's okay. Uh, uh, regardless, Jake, I absolutely love doing the research for this episode. I love this. One of, one of those close-to-my-heart episodes. I absolutely loved this game growing up. And uh, I just, I'm, and it's a cool thing to see that, you know, it's definitely had some highs and lows, but like... It's maintained pretty solid throughout its entire, like, you know, you can kind of set your watch on a Donkey Kong Country release. They're all pretty great. Even that N64 game is not bad. Like at the end of the day, it is not a bad game. I just think it's hilarious that this like incredibly weird amateur render by a team of Brits that like were just barely figuring out how to use these like very dated machines is still in the Nintendo canon. Like Donkey Kong still has the little hair swoop. He still has that weird like pistachio mouth. Uh He still has the weird Battletoads brow. Like it's just this bizarre holdover and he's he's in it. He's in the canon. That's what Donkey Kong looks like now. Now, yeah. And I just find that fucking hilarious. You a King K rule is in Smash. Like, you know, it's it's there. It's part of it. It's it's this weird risk that Nintendo took at their most desperate hour is now a part of this immortal uh uh, uh ensemble of Mario characters and it's just so bizarre that it's been at this point 26 27 years since it first came out hell yeah and uh if you're a fan of uh donkey conga yeah or king of swing or any of the other weird spinoff games and you're mad you didn't cover we didn't cover it uh i need you to uh just uh pick up all of your friends phones when they're not looking just for the next month just like grab your friends phones make them subscribe to our podcast it'll up the numbers on the donkey kong episode and i'll be like shit we gotta do more donkey kong episodes and we'll do a whole fucking hour on the fucking bongo game all right but i need you to put the work in okay i need you to violate (laughs) personal boundaries and help us get more numbers all right that's that's the deal well i don't think we can just cover that one franchise i'll do anything i think we have have to do i would rather do an episode on just bongo games okay we'll cover it'll be all bongo all every bongo game okay. put out on a console <laughs> it'll be like the all Kinect. right and maraca bongo slash maraca game oh, let's say that okay fun. yeah that'll be a good time all right well thank you so much for joining us for our donkey kong country episode uh if you'd like to follow us further patreon.com forward slash whizbrew on there we've got bonus episodes every single week for just five dollars a month uh, for fifteen dollars you can join us on discord every sunday for our sunday study session this uh last week we actually did our production schedule um to come up with our next batch of episodes the most worthwhile i think use case for the study session you get a say in the episodes we're going to do uh but we also cover you know whatever you know usually it would have it would have been us playing donkey kong country uh hanging out with a group of people and for an hour and a I half would have on forced a sunday everybody so. to sit and watch at least five minutes of that weird ass cartoon it's just oh and i would have made them listen to the rap about four or five <laughs> you times. did that already holton i know You're i have done that already drunk I? With I'm rap power. With power. but yeah check me out also twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho monday tuesday friday streams holdenators ho on twitch jake 
Sweet. Gotta press the flesh on that Patreon once again. Go to patreon.com slash whizbrew and uh, listen to a bunch of bonus episodes. We got hundreds of them. If you like the show, you will like those bonus episodes. I guarantee. Uh, also, I'm All on right. uh, YouTube and Twitch uh, at Puppet Jared. Uh, go to Puppet Jared on YouTube and Twitch. The Cartoon Dumpster is my flagship stream. We watch weird, bizarre, and insanity-inducing cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's a good-ass hang. I'd love for you to say Hell yeah, hi. dude. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. And don't let anybody touch your bananas. April hit it. Finally, he's here for you. It's the last member of the DK crew. This song's so strong, it is a show is made possible by listeners like you thanks to our ad sponsors you can support our shows by supporting them for more shows like the one you just listened to go to lastpodcastnetwork.com across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.